2: Hi, I'm Adam Brooks, and welcome to episode six of Reads Like a Four, the podcast dealing with critics, reviews, and professional criticism. I just wanted to take a second at the top of the show to say thanks to everyone who's listened, rated, and subscribed to the podcast so far. Um, Those of you listening to lots of podcasts will know there are a lot of slightly irritating tropes that podcasts tend to do, uh, things that we've tried to avoid here as much as we can. Um, We try to avoid 15-minute introductions before we get to the point. We think in conversations with critics, it should be the critics that do the majority of the. Talking, we don't. Uh, we try to provide as varied a range of guests as we can. We don't sneak in more adverts than are absolutely necessary. And if a conversation is particularly long, we'll break it up into bite-sized chunks rather than putting it out as one mammoth episode. But there is one trope that we can't avoid, and that's asking that if you're listening to this and enjoying the episodes we put out, that you support us by leaving a good review on iTunes, by talking about us on social media, recommending us to friends, and subscribing rather than listening as and when. All of this helps us reach more people and ensures the podcast continues. My guest this week is a fantastic critic who's written for a list of publications longer than either she or I could remember. She is...
1: Laura Snapes.
2: And her career in 60 seconds sounds a little like this.
1: I started out as assistant reviews editor of LME in 2010, and I did that for two years before I was headhunted by Pitchfork as their first UK member of staff, where I was an associate editor. Um, And then I did that for a year before going back to NME as features editor for two years. And then I went freelance in April 2015. And I've written for publications including The Guardian, The Observer, uh, The Financial Times, The Telegraph, Pitchfork, NPR, L. And lots and lots of other ones, all the usual suspects, uh, including smaller British stuff like The Quietest as well. And since January 2018, I've been deputy music editor of The Guardian.
2: Before we get into it, we're also on the lookout for critics to feature in future episodes, particularly travel and food writers and LGBTQI plus writers. Uh, If you fit the bill or you know someone who does, please email us readslikea4 at gmail.com. Now, let's hear from Laura. Uh,
0: uh, like,
2: like, I like, I like, I like, I like, I like, I like, you like, I like, um like, you like,
1: Yes, I can remember the first thing I ever reviewed um, when I was a teenager. Street teaming was still a thing. So short This was before MySpace mm-hmm. existed, or before MySpace had trickled down to my life anyway. Um, and I thought it was incredibly exciting to be sent a little bundle of like stickers and CDs and badges and stuff that you were meant to distribute. But I think I mostly just kept. Um, and I remember mm-hmm.
2: the... I actually, I, I actually used to run one of those, and I had a strong suspicion that not oh, much of it was making it which out. one did you run? <laughs> uh, UK Undercurrent. It was the sort of Warner one. I was yeah, that was my first my first uh, industry job was working at Warner, basically.
1: Right, man, I can't remember which yeah. one I was. Somebody should do like the the history of street teaming. Yeah,
2: there's definitely a book in it. I, I mean, there's there's people I know that got married through it and all sorts. Oh yeah. wow!
1: Uh, so yeah. I can't remember which company I did it through. Certainly not one of the big ones. Um, and I was sent a band by uh, sorry, sent a CD by a New York band called Ambulance Limited. And I should actually go back and listen to what they sounded like. But I remember writing a review of it on Spec and sending it to. My local newspaper in Cornwall, which had and still hasn't a fairly robust like music and entertainment section, surprisingly, for a regional paper. Um, and I don't think they printed it, um, but I did start doing stuff for them.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, do you? I, I was, uh, perhaps you've answered this question implicitly, but do you remember feeling any pressure? Were you conscious at the time that that was something you'd be making a career out of? At what point did it become kind of just something you were doing uh, uh, in, in, into something that you were doing for a living?
1: Um, I don't think I felt any pressure. The only pressure was ever for myself to try and be uh i hoped as good as the magazines that i was reading i mean those early reviews that i wrote are obviously garbage and i would say that probably at least the first (laughs) half of my professional career is also garbage um but i i knew from a very young age that 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 was what i wanted to do um so there wasn't a point where it went from being like oh this is just a little fun hobby it was always like i'm doing this because i want to write for this magazine
2: okay so you were kind of you were inspired to write about music by writing uh, as much as by music
1: Yeah, totally. Um, I was a big pop fan as a little kid and I read like smash hits and Top of the Pops. And, you know, when I was about probably 11 or something, I realized like, oh, wait, it's somebody's job to actually do this. And I was also a big Radio One fanatic and I loved Joe Wiley's interviews. And I thought, I want to do that. I want to interview pop stars. This is great. I never you know. there's People often think that music journalists are just failed musicians, but I never wanted to do that. I always just wanted to write about it.
2: Mhm. Um you as, as you mentioned in the introduction you you've written for so many outlets of all kinds um which two would you say are the most different in terms of how style and what they wanted
1: from you in terms of reviews. Oh interesting. Um I mean I would say NME and Pitchfork are probably the most polarized. Um I mean it, it, NME only had like one lead review at the time, so which was something of about 600 words, which is still probably shorter than most of the Pitchfork reviews are today. You know, I I think Pitchfork kind of 600 is the lowest end of the scale, but they might go up to 1200 for like a really serious album, like a Kendrick Lamar or something like that. Um, NME's House Style was a lot more about jokes and accessibility, because especially because you're writing for what at the time was a predominantly teenage audience, you need to make references. So they're actually going to get it. Whereas um which is you know it's a form of music journalism that works for a specific audience um it's not necessarily perhaps the most kind of stylistically sophisticated and i think that's more what pitchfork wants to go for something that's maybe a bit more literary um they have made it funnier which i think is you know to their benefit
2: Mm um one of the things i enjoy most about your writing and why i wanted to get in touch and why other people i've spoken to also recommended i speak to you is the way that often reviews have uh a little commentary on society and culture at large woven into them and not in a sort of beating you over the head with a political point kind of way, but sort of in terms of the context that records released in, Um, is it a case of simply wanting to provide context or do you sometimes feel there's a message you want to get out? And this week the medium happens to be a Justin Timberlake or an Ed Sheeran review.
1: Um, It's really nice that people have noticed that. Um, I would say that, um, It's not necessarily a case of like, I mean, certainly you could go back and find old reviews I wrote where I'm just trying to shoehorn a point in there that may not necessarily have a home there. But these days, um, music has always been the way that I've actually ever learned anything about the world. I don't have a degree. I don't have any kind of deep specialist knowledge in any other areas, but every, every... the way that I've seen the world has been pieced together through music. Like one example I often come back to is when Sufjan Stevens made the BQE, an instrumental album about a weird bit of road in New York, which led me to learn a lot about um, the racist planning of New York City in the like 20th century, which is something I would never have learned about otherwise. So music is both, music is my filter of how I see the world. So it's kind of inevitable that what I think about uh, the world and social dynamics and gender and class and race and things like that, Will be filtered through music, and also this is something that I've always thought from a very young age. Um, when you're a young woman uh, writing about music or writing about anything, and you're you know you reach a certain level of people knowing who you are. People always want you to write about being a feminist and about feminist issues, which obviously those things are really important. But I always think that that work is stronger when your values just come through in the work that you want to do rather than like climbing up a mountain and putting a big feminist flag in it and being like, these are my views on this. I prefer my views about the world to just be evident from what I write about.
2: Yeah. And so I guess I guess that as a viewpoint is so is pervasive, but it belongs in the reviews you write of a a record because it's all, you know, it's 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 omnipresent.
1: Yeah. And, um, I suppose, uh, I think you mentioned the Ed Sheeran review. It's when I approached it, I, I volunteered to review the album. I just thought it would be fun. I'd never actually listened to one of his full length albums before. And I didn't really have that much of an opinion about him going into it. I had seen him pop up on a Taylor Swift tour, like concert that I went to. Um, but I just thought this would be really interesting, like a fun pop thing to sink my teeth into. So I really didn't go in there intending to, you know, stick the knife or whatever. Um, but yeah, it's it would be easy, it's shooting a fish in a barrel to say that the latest Ed Sheeran album is bad. I mean, I know obviously it's like a great a great success, but you know I think critically it doesn't have a lot of love. But I thought it was more interesting to be like, well, these songs are they're played at people's weddings maybe played at people's funerals uh um you know he has a lot of young teenage female fans who have put him on this platform but how are women actually reflected through the music that he's making and just when I looked at the lyrics of all of the songs that he's ever released and on this album all of these patterns emerged that I just hadn't seen anybody pick up on before and yeah I just thought that you know you could make a wider point about masculinity through the prism of a very bad Ed Sheeran album.
2: Yeah, and of course it'd be very easy to do a straightforward this album is bad because it's bad kind of, you know, which a lot of people <laughs> did. Um it's something I was ta- I'm talking to Sammy Main on a future a future um, episode and it's one of the reviews she mentioned as one of the ones she enjoyed reading most because it's so easy to do a simple evisceration of an Ed Sheeran record, but this one obviously had quite a bit more to it. Um, uh, sort of similar to, to to Ed Sheeran thing. Where do you stand on the idea of reviewing something in order to bring an artist's uh, mistakes or hypocrisy to a wider audience versus not giving it the o- oxygen of publicity in the first place? Because um, one thing that I've spoken to a few people for uh, about for this podcast is the idea that review space is becoming more and more constricted, and so there's less room to take apart bad records, and people are sort of choosing to champion things they love over and above kind of doing reviews of both kinds.
1: Um I've definitely heard people say that before. I my personal view is that the areas in which those points of view are being restricted may well be in publications whose existence is slightly predicated on getting access from labels which could very easily be taken away because they don't necessarily have the greatest status in the music writing world. Um I'm not going to name any names, but um you know there are certain Publications that have to keep certain people sweet because otherwise they won't get access to their bands anymore and their website won't have a reason to exist and people aren't going there on the strength of, you know, the writing or the great history that it has. So, I mean, I'm really worried that saying things like this make me sound incredibly snobby. It's definitely not a, um, a problem that I encounter in terms of being told, like, you can't... Say-. I wouldn't write for somewhere that would tell me you can't say this about somebody because we have this relationship or whatever that we need to protect. But to, yeah. to your first point about... Um, starving people of the oxygen of publicity versus calling people out on the bad stuff that they've done i'm very not into this thing is problematic and here is why kind of writing like you know obviously if somebody's done anything bad you would hope that it would get called out but just as a genre of like x is bad and i'm going to tell you why i find it incredibly boring and i'd much rather people i much prefer the kind of writing that wrestles with the writer's viewpoint and its perspective and doesn't go in with a thesis that it is just going in to prove I'd rather somebody goes in with an idea and they're going to argue with themselves and see if what conclusion they come to through kind of putting that argument through its paces I think about Mm -hmm. writers like Gia Tolentino and Doreen St Felix were both at the New Yorker um who I admire massively I think they both do that so um and I you know if it's uh I don't know x little indie band uh, like for example that band Cabbage who did a merch list where they were selling like blow jumps and stuff like that i remember seeing show. that yeah you know that's the kind of thing that it's like they're fairly inconsequential a, a day's worth of twitter firestorm has probably ironed that out until the point you know in case that it, it might maybe they'll get much bigger in the future but then something like for example morrissey's continued aggravations i there's part of me that but no I, I do think that those things should be covered because you know he's a huge part of british history and that kind of like encroaching conservatism isn't just something that happens to somebody who happens to be like a huge 80s pop star it's something that happens to a lot of people and so i think it's it's really worth examining
2: yeah i guess especially when it exists in in a medium that is you know primarily liberal and creative on the whole
3: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on
1: linkedin.com people today.
2: What responsibilities, if any, do you think critics have? Uh, that could be in terms of fairness in terms of representation even things like how often they listen to a record
1: um i think you have to be fair um um by fair i would include um yes the amount of times that you listen to the record paying close attention attention to lyrics if it has any representing the album and its ambitions fairly though i do think that whatever an artist's intentions are I, I think that interpretation is as important or more important than in, than intent so you know they may have intended something and if it's come across well then they've done their job but it may have come across so poorly that you actually can't see what those original intentions were um um yeah, so I think those things are important. Um how many times should you listen to something? I think it really depends on how much you actually have to write about it. I will admit if I only have to write a hundred words on something and it's not something I'm wildly into, I might listen to it three times. But if I'm gonna write a picture book review, I've probably heard it at least twenty times
2: what's what single thing would cause the most improvement in reviews whether it's to do with how they're serviced what editors ask for who gets to write them I realize I'm asking you to fix the entire review system but um
1: well I don't really think the review system is broken per se you know I could definitely I could spend all day reading endless bad reviews and picking apart what makes them bad um I would say, I feel like a lot of it might be wasted time because, you know, there's always an argument about like, do reviews matter anymore because people can just go and listen to stuff. And I do think that I do think that they matter because I think, you know, when you're presented with the entire history of music on Spotify, you need that kind of filtering system, perhaps more than you ever did before. But um, I don't think that like you, for example, a hundred or a 200 word album review in any publication is going to do anything for the artist's sales or, or necessarily the writer and i think that my favorite kind of writing about albums is less taking specifically here is this one piece of work i'm going to analyze it completely as like its own unique thing i'm more interested in stuff that's a bit more essay like and um brings in maybe a few different things at once i think that those are the pieces that are probably getting read more than the capsule review which you know to be honest i think the capsule review just exists so that the record label can put four stars on a poster on the tube
2: uh, as we mentioned in the introduction you've you've spent time as a freelancer and also as as a staff writer staff member for several outlets um what difference uh, what's the difference between the two in terms of the power dynamic of reviewing um between editor writer, and artist and and does it affect the kind of reviews that get written?
1: I now commission the reviews <laughs> <laughs> whereas, whereas before <laughs> I had to pitch from the reviews um uh, I really couldn't pinpoint any kind of noteworthy differences of those kind of dynamics. I think it's more very much like each individual publication that you write for will have very different ways of doing things. Um, but I would say that in terms of the relationship to the artist, unless you're writing for one of those publications, like I mentioned before, where they might have to slightly stay on a record label's good side, I don't think the artist is kind of a consideration of it either way. But yeah, it's very much about the relationship you have with your editor and how they like to work and how much information they like to have in advance about what you think of something. Because, you know, there'll be some... This happens at a lot of publications, and I think a lot of people think this is nefarious, but it's not. Um, Where the editorial staff will have an idea of what they want a record to get because they have an idea of what the aesthetic of their website is and what they want or their their, um, magazine and what they want to stand for, and so they will be looking for somebody who's going to kind of fulfil that. And a lot of people think that that's you know very nefarious and it's stifling writers, but I don't think it really is. I think it just. It, it gives a publication an aesthetic and a readership and it means that you know kind of what you're going there for i think it's healthy really
2: mm-hmm. um, and now that you're uh, you're commissioning reviews what is it you are and aren't looking for in reviews and and in writers
1: well um uh, we don't we have a very small amount of reviews every week and we have two of us on staff who write them and then we have two contract writers and there's only let me count there's uh one there's only nine a week. And so we generally all tend to do two of them, one longer one and one shorter one. And Alexis always writes the lead unless he's on holiday. So mm-hmm. it's not, I'm not really, I know what they're going to give me because it's the same group of writers pretty much every week, give or take occasions where there might be a record where we think actually this freelancer would do a much better job of it. But I'm just trying to pair, well, I am either uh, this is going to sound like a complete contradiction, um, but I'm either trying to find the writer that I know will understand the record the best Or I also think that it's really important to take people out of their comfort zone and not just be like, you're the garage rock guy. Let's give you some more garage rock. You know, if (laughs) it's, I know what X writer will make of Y record so it's kind of could be more exciting to give it to Z writer and see what they make of it and then give you know the the garage rock guy for the sake of argument an EDM album and it's not because I want that person to be like oh this is awful what is this shit it's because I want them to kind of use the very astute critical brain that they have on something that is unexpected and it's going to kind of fire them in a different way.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, speaking of unexpected things, what's been the most unexpected reaction from an artist to a review that you've written, good or bad?
1: Um, I know, for, I good. know for a fact that Ed Sheeran read that review and was angry about it, which kind of makes me quite pleased. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, not that, you know, not that I was trying to be aggressive towards him, but I do think it's curious that a man who sold you know eight hundred thousand million records could still be annoyed by one review um mm-hmm. yeah but, I mean, it's I petty was of to, me to find that gratifying
2: well I was talking to uh to Peter Robinson on a recent uh episode as well who I think had a similar experience with Ed Sheeran he's he's he knows from seeing him interviewed by other people that he still remembers what Peter Robinson said to him on the radio you know x years ago so um, yeah yeah he's obviously got got a keen eye on his own press well yeah grudges, um, I mean,
1: that's a key part of his uh persona isn't it
2: <laughs> um can you could you recommend three other uh journalists whose work we should all read now and who i should try and speak to soon
1: um lindsey Zolaz at the ringer um, amanda petroczych at the new yorker mm-hmm Um, I did mention Gia Tolentino and Doreen St. Felix, who are also both at The New Yorker, but um, Jazz Monroe uh, for Pitchfork, who I think is one of uh, Britain's best music writers. He's a young genius. I think a lot of people think he's a girl, but he's not.
2: Fantastic. Okay, we'll take some uh, examples of all of their work and put them on uh, on Twitter when this episode goes out as well, so people can find them more easily. Um, so the final thing I wanted to do is something we do with everyone on the podcast. Um, I've got five uh, short snippets or phrases. Some of these are your work, some of these are other people's, and I'd like you to try and guess whether it's you or oh, not. Oh, this is um, awful. Th- I know. Sorry. Um, there's been a range of a range of scores so far. Uh, a couple of people got all of them. Uh, a couple of people got almost none of them. So uh, you, you'll be you'll be part of a, a a wide group of people that either do know or don't know their okay. own voice. Um, so here's the first one. His crooned vocal styling referencing the period in the 1920s when intimate amplified male voices were vilified for challenging ideas about how real men should sing.
1: Yeah, sit. I. Genius. That-
2: straight in there we go <laughs> i think you're the first person to not only know that it was them but also know what it was about okay that's one for one um two she picked the title mental illness to mock critics who ignore the diversity of her catalogue to label her a sad yeah, song, I wrote that. It's in Amy habits... man. yes you did well wow. um number three uh as she looks at our sexist violent culture from a panopticon davis is on omnipotent and dryly jaded i didn't write that i don't
1: think i know what panopticon means
2: <laughs> you didn't that was uh, uh, Ben Beaumont Thomas uh, on Myra Davis in The Guardian uh, number four the admission of bad faith shade to material situating her in a tangled line of posers who take positions for the sake of a, mon- a momentary aesthetic infatuation no don't
1: think
2: so no that's not you either that's uh, Alfred Soto uh, uh, from Spin on Tune Yards uh, and finally number five the lyrics are a harrowing portrait of war, nothing you couldn't garner from the television or newspaper, but images of dismembered limbs and a corporal whose nerves were shot hang oppressively.
1: Yes, PJ Harvey?
2: That's right. Well, I think you're the first person not only to get all five, but also to know all of the people you, uh, you talked about. Um, awesome. That's everything. Thank you so much for, uh, for talking Thanks to Thanks for having us. me. It's
1: been really fun. Oh, <laughs>
2: My heartfelt thanks to Laura Snapes for being the guest on today's episode of Reads Like a Four, the podcast that deals with critics, reviews and criticism. From one Laura to another, next week's guest is Laura Williams. Uh, She's written for local and national newspapers, specialist magazines and sites. The list is as long as your arm. We will be talking about how reviews get twisted, uh, local press struggles, what's the point of sub-editors, there's a healthy dose about the Manic Street Preachers, Um, and she uh, is the first guest on the podcast to argue that perhaps reviews are more useful to the industry than they actually are to the people reading them. Uh, so more of that from Laura Williams next week. For now, thanks so much for listening. Um, you can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Reads Like a Four or get in touch reads like a four at gmail.com. Until next week, thanks for listening.